0: Well, one thing that, that we're very, very passionate about is uh, teaching you that that the Christianity that, that says you've got to put up with, you know, getting sand kicked in your face. And, you know, Jesus taught, you know, if someone struck you on the te- cheek, turn to him the other one also. So we've had Christians kind of gravitate to, to that. And that's, that's almost like an easy Christianity. Our, our response to everything is we just turn the other cheek. We just turn the other cheek. And uh, turning the other cheek, Jesus is saying, listen, you know, you reacting isn't going to change the, the spirit in that person. So you, you don't get into fisticuffs with that person. But the Bible says that the weapons of our warfare aren't carnal. They are mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. We're just saying your power is dangerous to the enemy camp. So so I need you to understand that though, though we walk in the flesh, the Bible says, we don't war according to the flesh. The Bible says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against all the wiles of the enemy, the helmet of salvation, breastplate of righteousness, belt of truth, feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, taking up the sword of the Spirit, shield of faith, by which you're able to extinguish all, not some, not most, all the fiery darts of the evil one. The Bible says be sober, be vigilant for your adversary, the devil. The word adversary means one who actively opposes. So when you come into church and we say, hey, does anybody go on through a battle? Everybody is. The honest ones raise their hands, but everybody is. Everybody is. There's not a week that goes by where you're not engaged against the spirit of the world, the spirit in the culture. And the Spirit of God in you is always warring against that. But I I just want you to know that uh, we want to equip, we want to empower, we want to teach you about the weaponry that you have, that you walk in power. When they circled Jericho six days, God says, zipit.com. Don't don't shout. Don't make a noise. Don't talk. For six days just march around the city. They were jeering. They were antagonizing. The Jericho were antagonizing, throwing stuff. You're not to respond. Don't do anything. But on the seventh day, on the seventh lap, I want you to let out a shout of praise, blow the ram's horns and the walls came down. Impregnable walls came down because of spiritual weaponry. Spiritual weaponry. Moses took on the most powerful man in the world. At that time, Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Egypt ruled the world at that particular time. And Moses went in with a rod of God and brought 10 supernatural judgments. I need you to understand that that the... At Awakened Church, what we want to do is we want to teach you how to fight your battles. We want to teach you how to have victory, how to bring down strongholds, how to shift powers. We want you to get a revelation that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. That if Christ before you, who or what can be against you? That you're more than an overcomer in Christ Jesus. So come on, one more time. Can we thank the worship team for leading us in spiritual warfare? Amen. Give someone a high five and just tell them they are really, really ridiculously good looking. If you've got your Bibles, come with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 2, the Gospel of John, chapter 2, it's the fourth Gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, hold the horse while I get on, John, chapter 2. Amen, it's wonderful to be back at San Marcos. I just want to take a quick moment to just uh, say that unfortunately, this is the last weekend. For six weeks, we've had the beautiful Rominger family. This is Pastor David Rominger. can you stand up? Pastor David Rominger, all the way from Villingen Schwenningen, in Germany. He has campuses in Tuttlingen, which is where I was born. He has a campus in the town where I was born, in Singen, Friedrichshafen, Freiburg, Aunt the letzter is an orphan book. Of course, you got one in Offenburg. <laughs> Open mountain, Offenburg. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. And so we just love him and Zara, his beautiful wife, and their three, three beautiful children. Little uh Yoash, Yael, and little baby Jurgen. <laughs> I don't know why that's funny. Why are you laughing? It should be. We were, on the, we were on Lake Constance and uh, I think Zara was due any day and he made a commitment if she gave birth on the boat, they would name the baby Jurgen. So I start doing this. I'm trying to rock the boat. I'm doing everything I can, but kind of kind. But uh, actually, can we also welcome the newest little, newest little cutest little baby. Look what Colby and Isaac made. Oh, my, 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 my. He is just so beautiful. Little Yergy Gardner, as I call him. Little, he's just so beautiful. (laughs) I'm naughty. All right, come with me. Come with me. We've got limited time. John chapter 2. John chapter 2 is one of my favorite stories. It says, on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, because we're in Relationomics right now. So I want you to lean in this morning. You're going to hear some fantastic stuff on life, on marriage, on relationships. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now, both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Every time I read this, it kind of rocks me. It doesn't say, um, and it happened they ran out of wine. It says, and when they ran out, out of wine, and when they ran out of wine. That helps me a lot, if I was honest with you, because there was a lot of wine in my heart when I first got married to Miley Annie. Wine of love, wine of affection, wine of hope, wine of dreaming about what our future was going to look like together, life was going to look together, like, oh my God, we're always, you know, when we're dating, you know, I live at my house, she lives at her house, we're dating. And so every time she sees me, I've got deodorant, I've got cologne, I'm in my best behavior. Then we get married and she's got to live with me, and there's smells and
1: noises
0: and snoring. And and all of a sudden, it's like the wine can start to run out. The wine of Romance seems to have left the building. What's happened here? Oh, la, la. When they ran out of wine, so good news today, if you came for a word, when they ran out of wine Jesus was there in this life there are times where the wine of love the wine of forgiveness the wine of romance the wine of affection the wine of devotion can run out so when 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 they ran out of wine the mother of Jesus said to him they have no wine which i just love as well because an angel appears to her and says, "You know the messianic prophecy?" She's like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm learning them in, Sunday, in S- Sabbath school." He's like, "Well, actually, blessed are you, highly favored. God has chosen you. You're going to bring the Messiah, and He's going to be the savior of the world." So she knows she's carrying a child who's got a, for lack of a better term, a religious destiny. And the Bible says, "When when when they ran out of wine, Jesus's mama." comes to Jesus and says, they've run out of wine. It's like, woman, what does that have to do with me? Like, you know that I've been trained, you know that, like, I've got a... Re- but I, I, I like Mary because she doesn't just see Jesus as, like, a, in a religious context. A lot of people, you know, you'll hear this, well, you know, I don't really go to church, you know, I'm not really religious, I, really, I don't have a religious. We try not to be religious. Re, re, religion is really kind of like it's a veil and a substitute for the power that's in Scripture. Jesus didn't die to make you religious. He died to make you His. Jesus didn't die to make you religious. He died to make you alive. He died to make you live. You may have physical life, but your spirit was dead. And the moment you receive Christ, you are born again and you have everlasting life on the inside of you. This tent, this flesh will will perish one day, but you, the person on the inside of you, will live for all eternity. So I love this. Jesus says to his mama, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother says to the servants, whatever he tells you to do, do it. In other words, he's like trying to tell her, you know, this is Jesus saying, hey, mama, my time's not yet come. But he doesn't call her mama. For 30 years, she was mama. But now he's sitting with his disciples. He's 30. Mary comes over, they've run out of wine. He doesn't say, mama. He goes, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? She's like, "Oh, oh, oh, what did you just say? Oh, for 30 years I've been mama? And now you're sitting here with your posse and all of a sudden I've gone from mama to woman? Oh, and you're saying you're not ready? I'm telling you. When you're ready to go from mama to woman, you're ready to start, your, you're starting ministry today. Today is the day. Whatever it tells you to do, do it. So it says in verse six, it says, now there was set six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Six of them. 620 is 120, 630 is 180. So there's somewhere between 120 and 180 gallons of water. And Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. Somebody say max capacity. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. And when the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it was from, the servants who had drawn the water, knew; they knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. Now you got to understand, the bridegroom thinks he's in big doo-doo. Because it's the bridegroom's responsibility to make sure that he's calculated all the guests and everybody's there for the number of days of the wedding feast to make sure that there's enough wine for the wedding feast to celebrate. And it's his responsibility, and he knows that he completely underestimated. He he instead selfishly spent the money on honeymoon, on getting the house prepared, on getting new furniture, and he's kind of neglected his responsibility to his guests. And so now, and so now he hears that the master of the feast is calling him, and so he's kind of doing the walk of shame, thinking, "Oh my gosh, I'm, oh my god, like this is is embarrassing. This is like." You shouldn't do this. I'm so ashamed. And when he gets to the to the master of the feast, verse ten, he says to him, "Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, oh, then they bring out the inferior wine." And he's like, "I know we ran out. We ran out. But you, I know. I did. I, I, I you, you. You've kept the best wine till now. Huh? What the? Huh?" Like, look at this, and we've got so much of it. He turns the guy's shame, condemnation, guilt into praise, into honor, and into blessing. And the Bible says this is the beginning of the signs that Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested His glory. I just, I just love everything about this. The first thing I want you to understand is that that's the gospel. The gospel is that in my life running out of wine, me being selfish, me miscalculating, me looking after me first, I would stand before God and be met with guilt, shame, judgment, condemnation. But because of Jesus, where I ran out, He turns my ordinary into extraordinary, so that when I stand with God, instead of a rebuke, instead of a scathing, <laughs> instead of carrying shame, I... I. Here, well done, good and faithful servant. And enter into the joy of I, I am going to. We are going to heaven because of what Jesus did. Is just that amazing. But I love this story because of all the miracles that Jesus could have done. First, I can just imagine the angels in heaven taking bets. No, they weren't taking bets. They were they were casting lots. That's what they do. They were casting lots to see. You know, and and you know the the odds were up there. I bet. I bet. Jesus is going to raise the dead to show that he's the resurrection and the life. That's going to be the first miracle. And the odds on the first miracle is 27 to 1 that he's going to raise the dead. He didn't raise the dead. That wasn't his first miracle. You know, second up there was probably cleanse a leper. He's going to cleanse a leper. That's what he's going to do. He's going to cleanse a leper to show that the stain, the sin, our filth, our degradation, that Jesus Christ came to bring cleansing, to, to bring holiness, to, to, to renew us from dysfunction and brokenness. And that's what he's going to do. He wasn't cleansing a leper. He's going to open the eyes of the blind to show that Jesus restores vision and sight from despondency and brokenness. He didn't open the eyes. He, he, he turned water into wine. And the angels are like, man, did you see that coming? And they're scratching their heads like, and they're like, you know, Abba, God, like, why? Why that one? Of all the miracles, like, you know, you've upset the Baptists. Of all the miracles, why would you turn water into what That's your first one. Make it your third. Make it, just throw it in there like one of them, one of the things he did. Not not your first. God, you got to think, you can only make a first impression once. And God's like, exactly. Because for the last 4,000 years, mankind saw me as the law giver only. Before I was the lawgiver, I was a life giver. I gave the law to protect the life. But the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious scribes, the chief priests, they have so manipulated that they've given me the reputation that I'm a killjoy in the sky looking to punish people. They've forgotten that it was me that created life. It was me that ah, breathed into Adam, And Adam became a living being. I'm the source of life. Before I was the lawgiver, I was the life giver. I am the lawgiver to protect the life that I gave. And Jesus came to show us the Father. He came to show us God. So the title of my message today is I Heard It Through the Grapevine. I Heard It Through the Grapevine. So just, just so you know that this wasn't an anomaly. This wasn't, well, you know, it's just a coincidence that Jesus turned water into wine, but after that, he had nothing more to do with wine. Jesus begins his ministry with wine, and the last thing he does before he goes to the cross is the Bible says he takes the cup at the last supper and says, take this, drink this. This wine represents my blood, the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for the remission of sins. And then he says, and I'll tell you the truth, I will not drink of this wine again until I drink of it anew in the kingdom. In other words, besides McDonald's French fries, wine will also be in heaven. So the Baptists are going to have a really, really hard time. Not only that, Jesus continually tells stories. Like John 15, he says, I am the vine, my father is the vine dresser, and you're the branches. The word Carmel, Mount Carmel, where Elijah called fire down from heaven, Caramel comes from the Hebrew harem, el, which means the vineyard of God. Jesus in Matthew 21 says, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who plants a vineyard, and he leases it out to vine dressers. And then at the time of harvest, at the time of vintage, he sends some of his servants to come and get some of the wine, but they begin to be, Jesus is continually talking about the kingdom and vineyard. So I know I know, I know, know it's not popular. I know that people said, you know, Pastor, if you're ever on a flight and they give you a meal, don't order wine with your meal. I'm like, oh, why not? Well, just in case there's somebody watching you, and if they see you with a glass of wine, you just gave them license to go out and get sloshed. You gave them license to go out and get... If, if you're sitting there going, come on, Pastor, order wine, order... <laughs> Yes! He got wine! Now I'm going to get slut. Yeah, I'm It's like less about what's in my hand. It's actually more to do with what's in your heart. Just saying. Just saying. Jesus' first miracle. I love it. First miracle. 120 to 180 gallons. This is about 1,500, 1,600 bottles of wine. Does they need so much wine? All right, while I'm offending people, religion will tell you that for whatever reason God didn't think things through, wasn't expecting so many people, and wasn't expecting everybody to be so needy, and heaven is on a tight budget. The reason it's on a tight budget is because God spent all the money in heaven, apparently on the streets of gold. And really didn't leave anything left for you. That's religion will tell you that. So they'll tell you that God, God is just, you know, just, you, you just, you know He'll only supply your, supply your needs, not your greeds. That's what, that's what we heard in Bible college. He'll supply your needs, but not your greeds. You greedy little man. But if that's the case, then God is really not doing a great job. Because the world is full of need. The, 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 the poverty in the world, the world is full of need. The brokenness, the world is full of need. The injustice, the oppression, the world is full of need. Why isn't God moving on need? Because nowhere in the Bible does, does it say that God is moved by need. The Bible says God is moved by faith. Pastor Summer shared a story of everybody bumping Jesus. They all had needs, but one woman came and reached out by faith, and Jesus stopped and said, who touched me? And the disciples like, everybody's bumping into you. He says, I know people are bumping, but somebody touched because I felt power flow out of me. God's power is drawn to faith. God's power is drawn out by faith, not by need. I know this upsets people, but I've got to tell you the truth. I didn't write the Bible. I can't edit it or change it. I'm sorry. I just have to tell you what it says. So watch this. Blind Bartimaeus comes to Jesus. The Bible says he's sitting by the road begging. When he hears that it's Jesus, uh, he begins to cry out. The crowd tells him to shut up. And then he cries out all the more. So Jesus stops, commands him to be called. So then blind Bartimaeus walks through the crowd to Jesus. I'm over here. Oh, sorry. And he walks over. And, uh, and then Jesus, Jesus says to blind Bartimaeus, he says this. He asks him this question. Blind Bartimaeus standing in front of him. And he said, and Jesus says to him, What do you want me to do for you? The disciples are like, dude, are you serious? What do you mean? What it's obvious. And just like, I'm not asking because I don't know. What do you want me to do for you? Not, not what do you need. I know, I know what you need. Jesus was aware of what he needed. He didn't ask what he needed. He says, what do you want? Because let me tell you, people die in their need. People perish in their need. People languish and struggle in their need because they're waiting for God to meet them at their need. He does not meet you at your need. He meets you at the point of faith. What does that look like? I'm glad you asked. He says to blind Bartimaeus, what do you want? me to do for you. When need meets faith, it produces or it reveals itself in want. The drug addict needs to be set free from his or her dependency on that substance to cope, to numb, to to whatever. The alcoholic needs to get set free from the addiction to alcoholism but they will remain addicted to their drug. they'll remain addicted to their alcohol while it's just a need. But when need meets faith and it produces a want, when they get to the place where I no longer want this dependency, I no longer want to live in this dysfunction, I no longer want to live codependency, Jesus says, I Ask and you shall receive. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be open. What's he saying? He's saying that I know what you need, I know what you need, but you've got to go from need to want because the, the motivation to knock, the motivation to seek, the motivation to ask is a want. You've got to get to the place where you want. I don't want to have a lame marriage. I don't want to have the same dysfunctions that plague my grandparents, that plague my parents to come into my life. I don't want the same despondency. I don't want the same mediocrity. I don't want the same poverty. Jesus here turns the water into wine. And not just enough, not just enough, more than enough, more than enough. There's an abundance. Why? Because he's saying, I came to deal with your shame, your sin, your brokenness, your lack, your struggle. I'm come to, to make sure that you live in abundance, but you got to want breakthrough. You got to want transformation. Somebody say, Amen. So three lessons that we learn from the grapevines. Number one is soils. Soils. The first thing a vineyard owner or a winemaker will tell you is the first prerequisite of great wine is the condition of the soil. The condition of the soil determines the excellence of the wine. This one parable Jesus told called the parable of the sower. known as the parable of the sower. The Son of Man went out to sow seed. Some fell by the wayside. Some fell by shallow, sh- uh, shallow ground. Some fell amongst thorns. Some fell on good soil, 30, 60, 100 fold. But before it was known as the parable of the sower, it known as the parable of the soils because it describes four different soils. Jesus said to the disciples, if you can't understand this parable, you won't understand any of the other parables. All the other parables flow out of a revelation of understanding this parable. And the parable is the parable of the condition of the soil. The soil in this, in the parable is the human heart, is the human heart. So you need to understand that in, in, in a relationship, in every relationship, you right now are, are reaping the harvest of whatever you've put into the soil. A few years ago, we were up in Napa Valley, And I was stupid because we're up there for a couple of days, and I said to my wife, what are we doing? She goes, what do you mean, what are we doing? We're wine tasting. I'd never been wine tasting before. I'm like, yeah, but like for 48 hours, wine tasting? Like how hard can it be? This one's red, red wine. This one's white, sorry, Blanco, Bianchi. Nero, Bianchi. I'm thinking, how hard can it be? So I'm, I, I decide I'm just going to meet, there's a pastor up there. Hey, anytime you're up here, I want to connect with you. So I make an appointment to meet him because I'm like, I'm not going to sit there bored out of my brain, red, white. Wow. And so this guy for three hours just, you know, pours out. And I'm like, oh, dear God, what have I done? Anyway, we get to the, the wine place. We go to this place called Stag's Leap. And they tell us the story. About how for about 30 years they had this beautiful young man, a Polish migrant worker, who worked and managed the vineyard, started off as just a vine dresser, and then became the manager of the entire crew and, and helped produce the best wine. And the boss, the owner, was so so happy with him. He said, Listen, you know, how can I I don't want to lose you and, and you're getting headhunted. And he said, listen, I'll serve you forever, but would you, you've got some land on the other side of the creek at the base of the mountain. And there's just, a, just I can't remember how many acres, I think it was like 30 something acres. And, uh, and the guy gave it to him He said, listen, you can buy it off me for $10,000 and you can work it off and whatever. So he takes that. In 1976, um, the, the vines that were from this side of the, the creek, the guy gave to him and let him set up his own little winery there. They take that wine and they, they uh, present it in the 1976 Paris blind taste test, where they got judges from all over the world, and the French, the French are the best of everything. They have the best wine in the world. And they, were, they, they couldn't believe it. It was unanimous, oh, the best wine, ooh la la, this one is a Bordeaux, this one must be France, France absolutely, it is superior to everything else. And they were, they were aghast when they discovered, no, this wasn't not only not a French wine, but it was a wine from California. From what do you, who, has, who has heard of this Nipper Valley? What is this Napa Valley? This inferior, this cochon. What is, and, and, they, he, and it puts California wines on the map. And so they do a study, and they find out that because of the creek here separating and the base of the mountain, the, the, the original owner didn't want to do anything because it was so rugged, it was so difficult, it was on a hill. But that mountain used to be a volcano. And so the sediment in the soil was so rich with mineral deposits that the wine on that side, even though it was the same vines and the same grapes, it was a completely different flavor wine because of the soil. On my wedding day, so, you know, we all make vows on, on our wedding day. And one of the things that you, you'll discover when you read the Bible, which we always encourage, by the way, is there's this, there's this theme. So, so God says to Ezekiel, Ezekiel, take the scroll and eat it. And Ezekiel takes the scroll and he eats it. And he says, it was, it was sweet in my mouth, but bitter in my stomach. Then in the book of Revelation, John's in heaven, and there's a scroll, and then he's handed a scroll, and the angel says to him, eat it. So he eats the scroll, and says, it was, it was sweet in my mouth, tasted like honeycomb, but it was bitter in my stomach. So why is that? Because, because it's easier to, to have the word in your mouth than it is to digest, than to, to live the word. It's, to make the word part of you is, man, it, it's got some bitter, it's got some sting, it's got some ah to it. It's easy just to preach it. So, on my wedding day, we're making vows. We're making vows. And honestly, if I was honest with you, I'd say anything. Because we had our honeymoon booked. I'm going from celibate to celebrate. So, we're, we're, we're making wedding vows. And I'm excited. Then a year later, I'm like, shoot, I made wedding vows. i got going to live this stuff. For rich and for poor, and for better and worse. And then I realize she's pointing out my worse. I'm like, my worse? Your worse is worse than my worse? So now we're having worse wars. We're having worse wars of who had the least amount of sleep and who's suffering the most and who's got it the toughest and... I ain't sleeping with you no, I ain't sleeping with you no more. I tried that one so many times. Oh, that's it. You want this? You ain't getting it. Three days, I think, was the longest. (laughs) We are fighting. Three days I'm sleeping in a spare room, and then after three days I'm flowers. Honey! Baby, I'm sorry. So then the, then there's this 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 kind of you know God is always God is always there. And he's so beautiful when you let him in. And he he gives me this revelation in the midst of all of this that my name Jurgen means farmer. And I'm like, God, I've got enough bad news. doesn't mean, like, Jürgen means warrior. Jürgen means powerhouse. Jürgen means legend. No, no, no. Farmer. How are those pumpkins? Oh, growing really well. Thanks for asking. How's that wheat? Well, we had a little blight, a little mildew, but some of the crops remained. Farmer. I'm like, farmer. Oh, my gosh, it's getting more pathetic. And then God's like, Yerkes, I know this is hard for you. He says, on your wedding day, you think you made vows. I'm like, I did, I made vows. He's like, no, you did something else. I said, what? He says, you and Leanne didn't exchange contracts. I said, well, you know, I've heard people say marriage is just a certificate. Why should I get married? Or marriage is a contract. No, a contract is is if you do, I do. If you don't do, I don't do. That's a contract. If you want to ruin your life, Reduce your marriage to a contract. He says, Marriage is a covenant. A covenant is a place of exchange. I said, Well, what do we exchange? He says, On your wedding day, you gave Leanne your heart and she trusted you with hers. As soon as he said that, I'm like, Oh, shoot, I'm in big doo doo. And he says, You're a farmer. He says, a farmer has to understand soils. He has to understand, if, if the guy in Napa Valley never planted in those soils, he would have never have won the 1976 blind. It would have never have put Napa Valley and the wines on the map. The soil was always there. The soil was always rich with nutrients. But until health was planted, until something was planted in there, the Bible says death and life is in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Your mouth is a fruit producer. The fruit that you are eating in your life comes directly from your mouth. So God says to me, you know, Leanne and I, we're always fighting, always fighting, always fighting. This one night we had this big, it just kind of exploded. So I just know i got to get out of the house. And I didn't know, and I just wanted to, I just kind of want to have the last word. So I just said to well, her, right, all oh, right, that's it. I'm going to go and I'm going to pray. I'm going to talk to God because he's my friend. And, and I'm going to tell him about your Insubordinate behavior, and don't be surprised if you break out in boils. And so I go for this walk. I was a little more passionate than that, if I was honest. So I go for this walk with God. It's a true story. I go for this walk with God. A little bit embellished, but true story. So I go for this walk with God. And I'm throwing, I'm throwing my Leanne under the bus. Thank you, Audrey. I know you're surprised. Thank you. I know. Thank you. Thank you, Audrey. She loves me. And so I'm walking along, and I'm throwing Leanne under the bus. Oh, God, the woman you gave me. If, if, you know, I'm going through all of this kind of stuff. And uh, she, you know, woo, you know, and so as clear as I've ever heard God speak, he says, Jurgs, your wife is a product of your husbandry. All the men that have been in our church for a little while know that the introduction of that point ruined everything. And I apologize. But if I got to carry it, you're carrying it too. So I didn't realize the word husbandry actually is a farming term. Did you know that? The, hus- the word husbandry literally comes from the care of a field or, or plot of land to make it fruitful. That's what husbandry is. And God said to me, Jurgen, he says, you're complaining to me about you don't like the fruit that you're tasting from your vine, from your wife? He says, she gave you her heart. And you speak words like stupid, hopeless, insubordinate. He says, if you're planting those seeds into her heart, how can you expect a different harvest? He says, what kind of a wife do you want? And I'm like, (laughs) I hear you. Man, I thought you were serious with all that other stuff. It's a do-over. Come on, man. That's awesome. I love you, God. Grace, come on. Uh, okay do over um all right don't make the same mistake twice um I said God I want a princess that's what I want want a princess and he's like when was the last time you called Leanne princess I'm like what I'm like well when she starts behaving like one. he says it doesn't work like that I said what do you mean it doesn't work like that you see, what did I do with Adam? I said, you, you, you said it wasn't good for him to be alone. And then you put him asleep under a tree and you took out a rim. God says, it's wrong. I said, no, God, it's right. He's like, no, no, it's wrong. I said, God, I've read Genesis every January. March, Leviticus kills me. I bomb. I, I, I admit mean, I'm just coming on. I'm just coming clean, God. The Levitical laws. I mean, why? For the love of, why? Thou shalt not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. Me- what kind of sick people do this? Thou shalt not eat anything with the cloven. If you're eating stuff with the cloven, who, stop it? Because Leviticus kills me, but the one book I read every year is Genesis. I said, in Genesis it says, it's not good that man should be alone and make a helper. And the next verse says, you put him asleep under a tree. And God says, wrong. I said, right, I'll show you. And look, here it is. Oh, that's she you just snuck that in there. And God says, no, it was always in there. He says, in between me saying, it's not good for man to be alone and me putting him asleep and making the woman God brings all the animals to Adam. The next verse says God brings all the animals to Adam to see what Adam would call them. And whatever Adam called them, that's what they became. Then he puts him asleep, and then he makes the woman. And God said to to me, before I gave Adam the privilege of a spouse, I had to teach him the power of his mouth. He says, and I've watched you. He says, I've watched you. You are putting anger and junk and condemnation and guilt she gave you her heart. The most precious possession that you hold is the heart of your bride. You, Jürgen Farmer, are responsible for what is growing in her heart. If you don't like what's in there, you weed it out through repentance. You deal with the rocks. You deal with the acidity. You put that stuff in there. I realize that, you know, if you you study anything, when, when when you're looking at a soil there's there's stones there's there's rocks you've got to get out of the soil there's 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 weeds you've got to weed out and then you've got to look at the alkalinity or the acidity of the soil to, to see whether it can take the seed and, and grow the seed and, and god began to deal with me he began to say Jurgen, like rocks are offenses i I knew of a couple who were powerhouse ministry. You saw them, they powerhouse ministry. She's traveling, speaking at these conferences. He's traveling, there speaking at those conferences. And then they get this horrible divorce. And we're like, my God, how did these two people, it's such great. But but, but, but if you go back for the last 20 years, they, they just kept sweeping under the rug, just kept sweep. They had Their soil was so choked by offenses. He had a fence, she had a fence, he had a fence. And they just kept just kept piling rock piles. God says, you gotta get rid of the rocks. You gotta weed, you gotta weed the garden. Little thoughts, insecurities, negativities. Because if you don't do that, then the soil is gonna get acidic. And when the soil is acidic, that's, that is like unresolved issues. That's like bitterness and resentments and bitter judgments. You don't wanna end there. You are responsible for the soil. You're responsible for your wife's heart. Can somebody say amen? And I got four minutes left and two points. All right. Number two is cycles. The first, the first thing that we learn from the from the, the, the grapevine is the soils. The second one is cycles. Life moves in cycles. Life moves in cycles. This is, a, this is a good thing for you to remember that life arrives in stages. It arrives in stages. Colby and Isaac are in the stage where they've become, they've gone from being a, a wonderful couple. There was a few years ago where they were just singles with a little twinkle in their eye. Then they got married. And now they've gone from a couple to a family, to, to a mama and a papa with a beautiful little baby. Life, life arrives in stages. It's lived on levels. It's lived on levels. Our goal, and this is what you'll find, is, is when you come into Awakened Church, we won't leave you on the level you're at. So a lot of churches say hey just come as you are we love you as you are but what they really mean is hey we don't want to challenge you we'll just leave you as you are just pay your tithe and cheer and, and we'll be happy we won't affect we won't offend you you don't but we we, we just I just there's just something in me I'm not vielleicht it's the deutsche it's the german in me I don't know. I can't I have to agitate a little bit and so <laughs> so I feel like I'm failing god if you're still here on the same level as you walked in on a year later. I feel like, you know, because the Bible says from glory to glory, from faith to faith, line upon line, precept upon, you, you, you should be at a new level. You should be at another level of thinking, of vision, of, of faith, of, of understanding, of revelation, of spiritual warfare, of pa- power. in your Anyway, so, so, so life arrives in stages. It's lived on levels. It's experienced in seasons. It's experienced in seasons, but it moves and operates in cycles. Real estate has a cycle. The weather systems has a, the earth has a cycle. You, you, you operate in a cycle. You gotta understand, you gotta understand the, the, the cycle that you're in right now. When Leanne and I got married, it was it was it was wonderful because there was just the two of us. And then just as we started to get used to that, then a baby came. And then I found I found my I would get home waiting for my my, my wife and I'd come home to my son's mother. I'm like, where, where's my wife? She's tired from mothering. I'm like, what about me? <laughs> I got needs too. It was, it was just, it was just the cycle that we're in. I've got to move. Number three is seasons. (laughs) Life is experienced in seasons. Do you know what we learned in Napa? What we learned in Napa is that no one shuts down their winery or their vineyard because they went through a bad season. That they don't shut up shop because they had a bad season. This is good in business. In business, you might have had a bad season. You don't quit, don't throw in the towel. It's the same in marriage. You might have had a bad season. Don't throw in the town, do you know how many sports athletes how many stars went through a bad season and thank God they didn't quit the ones who did quit we never heard about. the ones who went through a bad season went through a difficult season and then went back to the drawing board went back to the did it, never quit in a bad season never quit in a bad season never quit in the storm never quit in the dark never quit in the difficulty. let me say something else about seasons. There are four seasons every year. Can I just encourage you? If you're dating, which we encourage, date for four seasons. Date for four seasons. Because if I was honest with you, when I was dating my Lainey, she only saw Jürgen's summer. She saw Jurgen spring. And then when we got married and she saw Jürgen winter, she's like, what the is this? I'm like, well, it was always there. You had to expect it. She goes, yeah, but you never showed me it. I might have thought twice about it. We can fall in love with someone's summer and someone's spring. That's why, you know, kind of date, date for a whole year if you can. See them in every season. I'm going to finish with this. When, when we were in, in Napa a few years ago with some of the campus pastors, a um, beautiful gentleman from uh, Balboa campus He's been a, a wine aficionado for over 40 years, and he hooked us up with these these three vineyards. And they were they, they weren't even I've never I, I still for this can't even remember the names don't even know the names. And so again me you know being a little hard headed I'm like pff, pff, why why are we even pff, why are we even going there like pff, who's ever ever heard of you know whatever the wine. So we get to this first place and we find out that the, this guy owns like 13 properties this is one of them. He was the inventor of the floppy disk way back in the day for Apple Macintosh when Apple and Macintosh were still before Apple was Apple. And so, you know, he's got, you know, he's a billionaire and he's, you know, this is one of his vineyards. So then the the, the tour guide leads us to this mountain. We're walking to this kind of little mountain. I'm like, why are are we going up on, is it like the Sermon on the Mount? We're gonna, and we actually don't go on the mountain. We go into the mountain and it's like a James Bond movie. Like there's, it's like he's carved out and there's like lights and ventilation systems and these, you know, slow spinning fans and, you know, and then there's this glass, glass wall at the end with a room in there. And there's a beautiful table and cheeses and charcuterie. And we sit down. It's like exquisite. And then they bring out the first wine. It's a Chardonnay. And they said the Chardonnay is called Barbara. It's called Barbara. And I said, oh, is he from Santa Barbara? And this said, oh, no, no, no. He named it after his wife. They've been married 61 years. He named it after his wife. I'm like, oh, oh. And all the girls are like, oh. didn't even taste that good anyway. And so, you know, I'm trying to, so then we go to the, we go to the next, we go to the next place. And, we, and the next place, uh, we find out this guy has been married 40, 47 or 48 years. And he named the Pinot after his wife. I'm like, okay. and then we go to the the, the third place for the day. And three's enough in one day, trust me. And so we get to the third place and we have this little Psalm. He's like maybe five foot four. He's the cutest. He's got this He looked like, honestly, every time I looked at him, I thought, you look like one of Snow White's elves. Like he's just one of the, like he's just this little tubby belly, short little fingers, and and this gray, gray handlebar mustache. But he he knew his stuff about wine. It was unbelievable. So he was, we're tasting all these wines. It's uh, 2018. And he goes, and we're about to taste for the first time the 2013. I'm like, yeah, you guys are a bit slow up here, aren't you? You might want to. It's 2018. And he just looks at me and goes, sir, it takes five years to make a good wine. He says, but let me tell you what we're about to taste. All the winemakers, everybody's been so looking forward to this wine. I'm like, why? He said, because this wine, 2013, was a brutal year. We had the severest droughts in the summer, no moisture. The stress on the vines was almost intolerable. So that means the roots had to go down deeper to try and find water. And it, it it put such stress on the vines. He says, and then in the winter, we had the severest frosts where we lost over a third of the grapes. The only grapes that survived were the ones who could thicken their skin to survive the winter frost. He says, and the winemaker has named this wine. I'm like, don't, don't tell me, don't after his, yep, after his wife. I'm like, and they've been married like 46 years or something. And so Pastor Becky, and I love Pastor Becky because Pastor Becky thinks I'm smart. And so she goes, Pastor Yergs, Pastor Yergs, why is it that all these winemakers, vineyard owners, stay married to one woman their whole life? And I wanted to say to her, how the heck would I know? And just as I'm to say that, the Holy Spirit says, tell her it's simple. So Becky... Simple, she goes, It is like it is, and then God says, I said, Becky, it's 2018. The winemaker told us it takes five years to make a good wine. He says, In 2013, this wine, which he said will sell it two or three times. The same for the same wine, same price of the two twelve. The two thirteen would be two to three times the price because of what it went through. He says because it went through the severest drought, where there was incredible stress on the on the vines, accelerating, accentuating the flavor of the grapes. And then it went through the most most severe frost, where one third of the harvest was lost. The only ones that could survive were the ones that could thicken their skin thus multiplying the, the the richness and the texture of the wine. I said, a winemaker, if they go through a drought in their marriage, there's a drought of love, there's a drought of affection, there's a drought of time, there's a drought of devotion, or then they experience a frost, maybe even in the same year, frosty, cold, callous, uncaring, he's not going to divorce her. He's not going to leave her because... I didn't get my knees met, or we just went through a drought, or irreconcilable differences, or, you know, she was frosty, he was frosty. He, he, why, why, why would he leave her? Because in five years' time, in five years' time, he knows the greatest vintage that is ever going to be produced is going to flow from that season of drought and frost. Why would he leave her and let somebody else drink the wine? Do you know the Bible says... Don't be be seduced by an adulterous woman. It says, always be enraptured, literally always be intoxicated with the wine of the love of your wife from your youth. A winemaker's not going to leave her because of a drought and because he recognizes what's coming. If you can understand seasons, if you can understand cycles, if you can understand soils, these are lessons that I heard through the grapevine. Jesus taught about wine. Now watch this. I want you to stand to your feet because we are out of time and I'm going to be in big trouble. (laughs) I want you to turn your palms towards heaven. This is a true story. Uh, About six weeks ago, I sat down with a couple We're making a transition in our leadership of of one of our um, orphanages in Mexico. I'm just talking to this couple, and within the first 10 minutes, I knew that they were the right pick to to lead this orphanage. But as we began to talk, they they said, Pastor, we want to take you to Guadalupe, Mexico, to our favorite vineyard one day. Would you give us the honor of doing that? I said, oh, flip, absolutely. I'd love to. I'd like you. I'd, I'd do it. They said our favorite vineyard down there is called the Suffering Vines. The Suffering Vines. Do you know Jesus, how many people know he had to die on the cross for our sin? We all know he had to die on the cross. But do you know Jesus continually said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and then be handed over and crucified. The Son of Man, we're going to Jerusalem where it is written about the Son of Man. He will go the way as as it is written, for he must, he must suffer. Now, I, I don't know about the suffer. All I know is that he had to be crucified for our sin. He had to atone for our sin. Somebody had to die for our sin, and Jesus died so we didn't have to. But I didn't understand the suffering. So Jesus says, the Son of Man must suffer. Because of the what because of how much the vines suffer in drought and in, in uh frost, it accelerates the flavor of the wine. Jesus takes the cup and says, this wine represents the new covenant. The old covenant was the law and us measured against the law. The law condemned us. We fall short of God's perfect standards. We fall short of God's righteous requirements. So Jesus says, this is now the new covenant. I know that the law condemns you. I know that God's perfect standard condemns you because there's nobody perfect. So the Son of Man must suffer. Why? Because the first death in the Bible, the first human death in the Bible, was when Cain murdered Abel. And God comes to Cain. He says, where's your brother? And he says, how would I know? I'm not my brother's keeper. He says, well, you're meant to be. He says, I hear your brother's blood cry to me from the earth for justice. You, you slayed an innocent man. You lured him into a field and you struck him and you killed him. And now his blood cries out for justice. Jesus says, I am the vine. I must suffer. Why? Because he was producing a blood that had a greater frequency than that of Abel. The frequency is so fever pitch. It is so high frequency. It is so potent, so rich, that when you and I stand before God, The law of God and Satan's accusations are completely drowned out because of the suffering vine that produced the blood wine of the new covenant that Jesus spread on the mercy seat so that when you're under the blood, all that God hears is, no, no, justice. God looks at you and all he, no, 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 justice. No, 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 justice, enter into glory, enter into glory. I stand before God with my imperfections, but because of what Jesus' blood has done, it is perfection. So I want you to lift your hands to heaven. Whatever you're going through right now, Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the answer. He died on a cross to break the power of your sin, but he also suffered. So that when you're under his blood, I want you to know the blood cries louder than all the accusations that are against you. The blood screams louder than all the judgments that are against you. That's what Jesus is suffering dead. So, Father, I thank you for those right now that need to come under the blood of Jesus, that need to surrender their life to Jesus. Lord God, let them be saved right now. Father, I also pray for those today who are are maybe in a drought in their marriage or in a frost in their marriage. Don't quit. Don't throw the towel in. There have been so many times, Leanne and I, this is our 32nd year of marriage. There's been so many years of droughts and so many years of frost. But I'm telling you, today we live in the vintage. We live in the overflow. I'm more in love with her now than than I've ever been. We are closer. We are more in love. Our marriage has never been better. If you would have told me 32 years ago, you'd be more in love today than you are when you first got married, I would have said, you got rocks in your head. But here we are. And I didn't realize it was the droughts and it was, don't never quit in a season. Never quit in a bad season. Don't throw the towel Maybe you're in a cycle. God is with you in your cycle. He's the author of cycles. Maybe today the word soil, maybe the soil, you realize, oh my God, I've been neglecting the soil of my wife's heart. I haven't been sowing kind words. I haven't been sowing affection. I been, haven't been have been sowing words of affirmation, of tender care. Make a difference today. Wives for your husband. What he needs more than anything else is, is for you to believe in him, for you to cheer him on, for you, to, for you to remind him he's got what it takes to lead the family, that you're putting your trust in him because you see in him strength. Father, bless each and every person today, I pray. In Jesus' name, everybody say it. Amen.